Well, we now come to what um, many have called the toughest text in the New Testament. Sweet. So you pray for me. <laughs> um, open your Bibles, please, to First Peter chapter 3. Ignatius was a disciple of the Apostle John. It's a lot of years ago. He died around 107 A.D. Before he died, he said these words. Stand firm and immovable as an anvil which is beaten upon. It is the part of a brave combatant to be wounded and yet to overcome. But especially, we ought to endure all things for God's sake, that he may bear with us. Be every day better. Consider the times. Expect him who is above all time eternal, invisible, though for our sakes made visible, impalpable, and impassable, yet for us subjected to sufferings, enduring all things for our salvation. End quote. In other words, as a Christian, you go through life suffering like an anvil that is being beaten upon. I don't know if you've looked at an anvil, and if you see one that's been around for a while, it has kind of some marks on it, right? Kind of almost scuffed out marks. And what it really shows is it's received a lot of pressure, a lot of beating, a lot of pounding, and yet it remains firm. That's the picture for us that Ignatius wanted us to have about Christian living. There's purpose, and that purpose is locked into Jesus' suffering. Enduring all things for our salvation. Where did Ignatius get that kind of thinking from? Well, he probably got it from John, who discipled him. But he also got it from another apostle named Peter. In fact from one verse in one of Peter's letters. Our verse this morning, 1 Peter 3.18. Now we're starting a study, 1 Peter 3.18-22, but we're going to really just hone in on verse 18 this morning. Ignatius was saying, the victory in Jesus is a victory That is, was a victory in his suffering. Now listen carefully to that. The victory in Jesus 
was a victory in his suffering. That is actually the whole message of 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. And we're going to spend a few weeks on this. This is the reason why I've titled this series, Victory in Jesus. Now, Peter's theme, as we have paid attention, we've been going over this, by the way, for a year. We've been studying 1 Peter over a year now. And his theme really all throughout his letter is about suffering as a Christian, right? Not that hard to see it as you work your way through it. The reality of suffering for all of us. How, I mean, how to suffer. He, he's, that's what you kind of learn. You get a, sort of a theology of suffering as you go through First Peter. How helpful. How applicable at all times. Because if you're not suffering right now, you will. Life is guaranteed to have that part of it. And so he really addresses why suffering as a Christian is important. That is how God uses it. How we can have victory in it. In other words, suffering doesn't have to be an end of something. Suffering doesn't have to be the down note. It could be the means to getting us way up here. And so we're talking about life. Peter has been in the midst of suffering and Peter gives lessons all, all over the place. Now go back to chapter 2. We're going to kind of remind ourselves, be connect, I want us to be really connected to the whole epistle of 1 Peter here this morning to get verse 18. And I tell you what, um, <laughs> you want to know, if you want to know, have a right, proper interpretation. So in other words, if verses 18 through 22 is one of the toughest texts in all of the Bible, then it's imperative that we make sure that we have used the right rules of interpretation, right? Context. That's key. So here we go. Chapter 2, verse 20. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Verse 21. You have been called for this very purpose since Christ also suffered for you. And then Peter says we are to follow in Jesus' footsteps. In other words, he suffered for us as an example to be the footprints. And I think this is so important because I think oftentimes we think that the key in living life is to try to find a way out of the suffering. And that is not Peter's message. He says, actually, no, the key is to learn that suffering is our life. So let's understand how that looks like as a Christian. So let's understand the value of knowing Christ. He suffered for us as an example. Now, by the way, that's not the only reason. But that is there to be our example. When we get to chapter 4, verse 1, same thing. Look at it. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. It just keeps on going. Right? And then verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. That's our life. Verse 14, he says you're blessed for it. Chapter 5, verse 1, 
I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. He just keeps on pouring himself into this direction. Hey, let's talk about suffering. Oh, did I? Did we do that? Let's do it again. We we just did that last week. I know, we're just going to keep doing this. Almost as though he knew we would really have a struggle wrapping our, our arms around suffering. Job did. We should expect that we would as well, right? Chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while. See, what's he talking about? He's talking about life. And I like how he says a little while. He says, you know what life is? It's just a little while. Compared to eternity, it's just a little while. You say, um, man, so these guys were really going through it, right? I mean, maybe even being persecuted. Well, the suffering was mounting. It was, it was coming. It wasn't as though, and I think why he's telling them this is, it's not like they are, it's going to get worse. It's not like they're in it to the max. Look back at chapter 1, verse 6. He says, You've been distressed by various trials, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, tested by fire. There's another word for suffering. May be found to to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, same thing. All over the place. Chapter 3, verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. And what that means when he says don't return it, that means they're getting it, right? He says don't enter into the volley. I mean, people are giving them evil and insults. Chapter 3, verse 13, harm. Chapter 3, verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. I mean, it's near. There's intimidation, he says, out there. There's the pressure of fear and hostility all around them. And many other verses that we could point out, but you get the point. But that's Peter's theme, right? How to face the pressures that lead to suffering. How to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now why does Peter keep talking about sufferings and coming back to Jesus' sufferings? We saw that in chapter 2, verse 21 to 25. And now we're going to get another section on it. So the question is why? Why do we need two? Right? Listen. Because Jesus is the key to our sufferings. How he suffered is the key to our sufferings. How he suffered is the key to how we suffered and, and what our section in 318 through 22 teaches us is there's something about the sufferings when he died that are key for us. A theology of sufferings, how to handle sufferings. Say, so what is the lesson? That there can be victory. that there can be victory in them, in them. Again, listen to me carefully. 
Not victory in the sense that our sufferings go away. They might not. They might go away for a season. They might stay for a longer time than we want them to. Mary, the mother of Jesus, you see, she must have been so excited after Jesus was born. Um, maybe you forgot about the events that took place. Let me just help me remember them. She was told, a sword will pierce your soul from now on. They were run out of town after... I mean, because Herod was killing babies. So they were displaced from their home. And then when they came back, decided to go and make residence in Nazareth where nobody but losers live. Listen, that was the reputation. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, that's not my view. That's just what people said. Read about it in John 1. Can anything good come from Nazareth? That was a, there was a saying that went like that. Boy, just had, I mean, Luke 1, hey, you are going to have a child. That child's going to be the Messiah, the king. And then, boom, a sword. You're a renegade. You know, welcome to having the Messiah and raising him. This is just how it's going to be, Mary. So in other words, the plan isn't to remove the sufferings. The plan was to get her through them. To make her sufferings an opportunity for victory, right? That's the overcoming Ignatius was talking about. Now let's go back to chapter 3, verse 17. So I want you to see some things here as we make our way into our text. Last week, the message was about victory in the lines of defense against hostility from the world. Okay, So the world brings its hostility. Peter says you can have victory in that by knowing what your lines of defense are. This week, it's about a different victory, and the focus is Jesus for us. Again, look at verse 17. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for for doing what is wrong. Now, two ways for a believer to suffer. Here they are, for a Christian. Just talking about a Christian. You can suffer for doing what is right, That's one way. You can suffer for doing what is wrong. That's another. And so you can choose to suffer by doing what is wrong. And Hebrews 12 says to you and me that, well, the Lord's going to come and chasten us. He's going to come and discipline us. In other words, if you're truly his, he won't let you stay there. And life for you will be miserable for a while. Why? Because you're kicking against the goads. The Lord will discipline you and he'll take care of you that way. And that's a sorrow that will 
will eventually create joy, Hebrews 12 says. But you've got to go through it worse than what you might have. So that's one way. And by the way, you can read all about that kind of what that way looks like in 1 Corinthians, the whole letter. Well, we're doing that right now in our flock study. Correction all over the place. So that's, that's if you choose to do what is wrong. Or you can choose to do what is right and suffer and see the Lord's blessing in your life for that. What do, you, what do you get if you choose righteousness as your path? Protection. That's one thing. Did you see that there in our last study? He says, who is there to harm you? Protection from those who revile you. Answers for those who challenge you. If you choose to be obedient to Christ, no matter the cost... There might be suffering, but there will be protection and there will be blessing. That's the second thing. Protection and blessing. Now, having said all of that, one more time, let's put verses 18 through 22 before you. And I want to read them again. First Peter 3. For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. We're talking about suffering, but having the same kind of victory Jesus had when he died and rose. The same. I believe this is what he wants us to take away. Now look at all the victory that Peter talks about here. Verse 18, over death, right? Verse 19, over spirits in prison. He say, well, what does that mean? Demons. Satanic spirits. Say, so, uh, okay, say more. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, you get to the end, verse 22, and it's victory over authorities and powers and all sorts of things are subject to him as the victor. Now, as we work this through, we are going to see his victory in four spheres teaching us four lessons in his sufferings. Victory in his death. Victory in his proclamation. Victory in his salvation that he accomplished. And victory in his exaltation. We're going to see all of this. 
and lessons from all four of those for us on how we can have victory in our sufferings. Let's start with point number one, and this is the only point we're going to get to this morning, victory that is from his unique death. Victory from his unique death. Now, the emphasis, of course, is on the word unique, but it's also on the word death. It was a unique death. As we get to this, I want you to know, again, the challenge that we have before us. Every single commentator I read, I read close to 15 of them, or maybe more. They all said that this is by far the most difficult section in the New Testament. Now listen, to both translate and interpret. Both. So there's that. (laughs) But we'll give our best shot to try to use normal Bible interpretation rules to get there. By the way, you say, what are are those normal? You keep talking about that. What are they? Five of them. I'll give it to you real quickly. Literal. That is, we treat it with plain, in the plain sense. Let it speak in the plain sense. Grammatical. Contextual. Okay. Historical. And synthetical, which is just another way of saying Scripture, interpreting Scripture. And we're just going to allow those rules to guide us as we go through here. All right. I have a handful of points to help us understand Jesus' victory and suffering from his unique death. Um, It was unique. It, it, It stood out as a kind of death that was like no other. And I have five of those points for you. So let's work... These through five points to make. First one, Jesus' death was definitive. Jesus' death was definitive. See, what do you mean by that? It was final. It was absolute. It was complete. Or you could even say it was ultimate. Jesus' death was the standout death beyond all others. Romans 5, he talks about uh, perhaps a, a good man might die for you or for another person. And in making that argument there in Romans 5, what he was saying was people do die for people, but nobody has died for people like Jesus has. We should start with the fact also that later Peter says the death of Jesus was for the unjust. We need to remind ourselves that it was an unjust death. When we think about the death of Christ, it was unjust. Pilate said, I find nothing wrong with this man. In other words, it was Pilate's job to interrogate, evaluate, to bring the Inquisition, and from a legal standpoint, to know. He said, I find nothing wrong. The centurion soldier said, truly this man was innocent. Truly he was the Son of God. But even though all of that was true, Jesus still faced death. And was victorious in that suffering. 
Now take a look at the, at the word also. Let's start with the word also here as we move in, into this. For Christ also died for sins. Christ also. Boy, that, that gave me a little question mark. Also? Wait, I mean, who, who else died for sins, right? See, what do you mean, also? Well, let's look at the context. Verse 17. If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. He's talking about believers suffering, Christians that suffer. In other words, Christ also suffered, right? He also suffered. But his suffering is the definitive suffering, right? Hebrews 12.4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And that's another way of saying, you have suffered to the point where you, I mean, can say that you did something eternal for sins, have you? I mean, can you say that? There's nothing atoning about your suffering. And so Jesus' death was definitive. Now at this point I have to mention that there is a debate about the translation here. And it has to do with the word died. Many Greek texts have the word suffering here. And uh, I think the word suffering does make sense. And some of your translations actually might have the word suffering. And that's fine. It's a good translation if it does. Um, I think it makes sense because verses 13 and 17 are all about suffering. And the whole letter is about suffering. And actually, this is the only place where he says that Christ died. All the other places he uses the word suffering. So I have no problem with either translation. Jesus suffered for sins. Jesus died for sins. I think here in this context is saying the same thing. But having said that, let me just say this. I do think the NAS got it right. Christ died for sins. Here's why. Because it makes more sense to talk about atonement with death than it does with suffering. And that's clearly what Peter is talking about, the effects of the cross, death for sin. I think either translation works. His suffering was the definitive suffering. Listen, no martyr ever suffered to pay for the sins of others. He couldn't pay for the, other, the sins of others. couldn't pay for the sins of all the elect. So there's victory in that. There's victory in that. Second point to make about Jesus' death. It was also a sin-bearing sacrifice. Look at verse 18 again. It says, Christ also died for sins. Remember back in verse 17, suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Christ died for sins, listen, not his own. In other words, he can relate not only because he suffered, but because he suffered for righteousness, right? He suffered for the sake of righteousness. So when you're thinking to yourself, here I am suffering and I haven't done anything wrong, the one 
who can connect with you is Christ of all people because he suffered and clearly didn't do anything wrong. He didn't sin. So when it says for sins, whose sin is it talking about? Clearly, the sins of the ones that the Father would give to the Son, right? John 6. The sins of others. Now we could, can we say that about a believer? Well, I mean, it, there is a, a certain sense that you can. Now listen here. When you and I suffer for doing what is right, we are, in a sense, suffering for the sins of others. Think about it. Isn't that what racism is? Isn't that what jealousy is? Suffering for the sins of another? You didn't do it. When people categorize all Christians and say they're all just a bunch of hypocrites, you are suffering for somebody else's sin. Now, of course, we must say that Jesus, that about Jesus in a greater way, right? I mean, a much greater way. He never sinned. It was never his fault. I want to be clear when I say suffering for sins because even though we might be suffering for somebody else's sin, you can't pay for those sins. And only he could do that. He never sinned. It was never his fault. Earlier, chapter 2, verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. I mean, who can say that? Only Jesus. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Our sins put him there. Jesus did not go to the cross for a cause. He didn't go to the cross because he was a victim of someone's, you know, some injustice coming against him. He did it willingly for sins. It's interesting that phrase died for sins was used in the Old Testament to describe the offerings made for sins. I want you to listen to how Hebrews connects that to Jesus as the sinless offering. It's fascinating to me. Hebrews 10, 5. When he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Now, let me stop right there. What he is saying is, all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament that they made, God took no pleasure and then told Jesus to be the body that would be a sacrifice. So wait a minute. If he took no pleasure in those, why is he telling Jesus to do this? Ah. Verse 8. 
After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, by the way, if he doesn't take any pleasure in them, there must be a reason for them. And he's telling us all of them were big signposts to the one great offering. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. Who's the he? Jesus. Behold, he says to the Father, I have come to do your will. And then verse 10. Hebrews 10.10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And what's all that saying? Jesus suffered as an offering for sin. And there's victory in that. There's, a, there's, there's victory in a third lesson in Jesus' unique death. It was definitive, as we have already seen. It was a sin-bearing sacrifice. And it was thirdly, exclusively effectual. Exclusively effectual. Look at verse 18 again. Christ died also for sins once for all. His one death had massive impact and effect on many. Now, this really spells out how unique it was. Uh, the Greek word here for once is the word hapax, H A P A X. Hopox, which just simply means uh, perpetual validity not requiring repetition. Something that doesn't require repetition because it stands for all times. The, the idea of once was a huge point compared to the Old Testament. You remember the Old Testament, you had the priest, and the priest um, offered sacrifices for sins, and they did this over and over and over and over and over again, and it never ended, and they were supposed to have perpetual things. The candles to be lit, were to, that was to be perpetual. The fires were to be perpetual. And it really gave this sense of, you know, always having to keep it up. Every year, year after year, day after day, the sinning never stopped, the blood for forgiveness never stopped, and that's because the blood of animal sacrifice could never actually forgive sins. And so when it says once, it means it cannot be repeated. It means power to affect something with just one occurrence. Now there are... Um, Lots of things that we'd like to apply with that kind of power, right? I mean, imagine taking a pill once and never getting sick again. Yes, I know the commercials say what they say, but that's not real, okay? All right? But imagine that. I mean, how about paying for taxes once and never having to pay that again? That would be nice. So, right, here you go, all done. You know, I've decided I'm all done. There's a lot of people that have said that, but 
the IRS is after them, right? I mean, or how about this one? Taking one test and passing all classes for the rest of your life. Wouldn't that be great? Students, you say, all right, here it is. It's the one. I've got my pass over here. You show the teacher that say, hey, I did it. Nothing in life has that kind of effect. But the sacrifice of Christ did. How he suffered on the cross had that kind of effect. That's why we say exclusively effectual. It was a unique suffering, one of a kind. Now, the New Testament supports this, by the way. Hebrews 7.26, listen to this. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Nothing like us. We're, I mean, he was greater. He was sinless. It says, who does not need daily like those priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did, here it is, once for all when he offered up himself. You see it? It says it again in Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, but into heaven to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. No, his was unique. Follow along, verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That verse is loaded with stuff. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. That tells me since before the world was made, we have needed the sacrifice of Christ. See, I don't understand that. I know. Before the foundation of the world, it was already the, the statement was already in heaven made very clear that the blood of those animals won't, wouldn't do. Hebrews nine twenty eight. Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, all over the place. The Bible makes the point once, once, once for all. When I was a Catholic. I was a altar boy, a little white, you know, wore the white gowny thing, and uh, I would do my little duties. And I, so I, I was always just fascinated by the priest and all that he did, and it seemed very ornate and very kind of, you know, ominous. And the priest would take the giant wafer of bread, and he would lift it up. And he would offer up a prayer for God to turn that bread into Christ's actual body so that he might offer him up on the altar. Tell you what, once you're a Catholic, I I could probably recite those words still to this very day. You never forget them. 
would also offer up a prayer to turn the wine into the blood of Christ. He said, what was he doing? What, what is that? You ever wonder that about Catholics? Why do they do all that stuff? I'll tell you why. I know why by experience. I know why by theology. He would offer this to the people with the statement that he was actually offering up Christ's real body and giving Christ's real blood that had been transformed, that people might receive Christ. Every week, over and over and over. And you could hear the words very clear about what they're doing. When I, after I became a Christian, came to Hebrews and read Hebrews, all of those passages we share with you, Hebrews 9, rocked my world. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't need that. Jesus did it once for all. All done. All done. We have communion here at Grace Bible Church, but it is not to offer up the sacrifice of Christ. It is to remember that that offering of the sacrifice of Christ was once. And it has had its impact and effect. So what do I say effectual? What did it do? Listen, it had the effect to be a sacrifice once, to forgive all sins for all people that come to him for all times. Any that come to him. And that's what Jesus meant in John 6. Listen how effectual the suffering of Christ is. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. How? Because his suffering had the effect of accomplishing exactly what the Father wanted, forgiveness of sins. All who come to Him, anyone who comes to Him, anyone could come. Anyone could come. He said, I don't know about me, I've, I've, I've really sinned big. I mean, I've, my list is long. Anyone could come. John 10, same thing. Verse 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Why? Verse 28, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Who? The sheep that hear his voice and then follow him. See, You come to him and you will see that the sacrifice of suffering was once for all. All right, let's get to a fourth point about this unique death. It was fourth substitutionary. Look at verse 18. Again, the just for the unjust. You can say his death was vicarious. So what does vicarious mean? Vicarious means uh, is a suffering in place of another. To be vicarious is something performed in place of another. 
Jesus took the place of sinners. See, how did he do that? Well, in Genesis 2, Adam, the day you sin, you shall die. He sinned, and the death sentence was placed on him. Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins shall die for its sin. Romans 3, all of sin. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. What's the punishment for sin? Death. Jesus never sinned. So when he died, it was clearly God punishing him for our sin in our place. That means he took our sin, he took our penalty on himself. That was the point back in 1 Peter 2, 24. So many passages that show this. Isaiah 53, 4 to 6, you can write this down. And also Isaiah 53, 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 9, 28. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Jesus was the just. What's that mean? Many things. Many things. Let me tell you a few things here. When it says Jesus was the just, I mean, first of all, he was righteous, right? I mean, there was no sin, always right, never wrong. Never committing wrongdoing. The movies that come out can never make this point about Jesus. Never don't know how. We don't know how. We don't know how to do something and not have sin be attached to it or part of it. We don't know how. He was righteous. Secondly, when it says that he was just, it means... Any criticism that he had, any judgment that he gave was 100% right. You understand that? I mean, no one could ever accuse Jesus of being judgmental. Oh, he's a, that, that guy, he's, he's so judgmental. Are you kidding me? Whatever he, whatever he judges is right. You say, was Jesus judgmental? Absolutely. Because everything he said was right. His judgments were right every single time. You know, that's wrong. This is right. Just pointing it out. You can't say, well, that's just Jesus' opinion. Are you kidding me? Once he said it, it became like law, right? Third, he was without sin. And that, that means word, thought, and deed Right? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart of man is wicked. You can't say that about Jesus. He was just. Fourth, he was fair. Whatever Jesus said about heaven and hell was fair. Sometimes you hear people say, Well, I just think, you know, the Bible presents, it's just so unfair. People that go to hell, people that go to heaven, seems so unfair. Boy. Jesus is fair. He's just. He says he's the just for the unjust. 
Whatever he said about the people was fair. Jesus once said in John 17 that Judas would perish as the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Is that fair? John 6, did I not choose you 12 and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus said that about Judas. Was that fair? Yes. You know how I know? Because Jesus is the just. That's what it says here. But it also says the just for the unjust. We are the unjust. We are always wrong. I mean, you you could say it isn't fair that Jesus saves any. I mean, the balance is way on the other side. But salvation isn't about fairness. Jesus took our place so that it could happen. Our sin affected our mind, our emotions, our will. It affected our words, our thoughts, and our deeds. All of it tainted by sin. And so we are the unjust. And Jesus took the judgment that belonged on us. It's incredible. Can you be thankful? So his suffering was a substitutionary suffering. And I'll tell you, listen, he he was vicarious in it all. What do we take away from that? That unjust suffering can be vicarious. How do we know? Because no one suffered like Jesus and his was victorious so that ours could be. See, He suffered though he was the just one and he suffered from unjust people. He did it in our place. He didn't deserve to die that way but did it to be our substitute to accomplish that. We might have to endure suffering and not maybe it's not our own for our own something we've done, right? One last point here this morning, fifth. Just how unique the suffering of Jesus was on the cross. It It accomplished reconciliation. Go back to verse 18. So the fifth point is that it accomplished reconciliation so that he might bring us to God. This is a purpose statement. The purpose of his suffering, what was it? Reconciliation. What's that mean? And what was all that suffering for on the cross? It was this, for this reason to collect all the ones that the Father had given to the Son and to bring them to the Father. See that? The Father gave them to the Son. The Son saved them to bring them back to the Father. How? By making peace. Taking enemies and making friends. Psalm 85, by getting righteousness and peace to kiss. By getting truth 
in love to meet together. When Jesus took our penalty, it was to get us to have a relationship with God. You, you want to know something? It couldn't happen until then. You know, I talked to some people, you know, unbelievers. They say, yeah, me and God were like this. And I'll say, if you don't know him in salvation, you are not like this. It's more like this. Enemies, the Bible says. What's it based off of? Having a relationship with God. The word reconciliation means to bring together, to make peace. Colossians 1.20, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and above reproach. He deals with your sins so you and I could be friends with God. Notice in 1 Peter 3.18, the word us. Who's us? The elect. The ones, John 6.37 says, the Father has given to the Son. The ones in John 10 that Jesus calls, my sheep who hear my voice. Not all are his sheep, only the elect. The chosen of 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. See, what is the purpose then? For God... To not only forgive sins, but to have union with us. Isn't that good? To know us, to relate with us, to talk with us, and for us to talk with Him. Now there's something here that really makes that clear, and it's really, really wonderful that I want you to see. Um, Notice the words, bring to. In Greek, this is the word, uh, Here, I'll give you the word, uh, it has a uh, preposition, pros. Agago, pros agago. Uh, the word pros means uh, to or towards or for, and agago is to to lead, to bring to is the idea, to lead to something. It literally means to provide access for, to bring about a right relationship. Now, this word was used to describe a person in the king's court. And you would have this person in the king's court, and he would stand at a place in a position where when you arrived, he would receive what it is that you wanted, and then he would admit you to the king's court, but he had to be the introducer of you to the king. And so you would follow this person, to the king, and then this person, because, you know, no one just barges into the palace of the king. No one just waltzes in there. You come with respect. We aren't just visiting, by the way. We have come to to stay. And so here's the official giver of access to a visitor, but we're more than just visitors. We've come to stay. And And so you come with respect. And you remember Matthew 22, trying to come to the wedding without wedding clothes, and they were kicked out. You come dressed ready. You come because you've been invited. You come needing to have admittance, needing to get access. That's what this word is. Now, who's the introducer? Who is it? It's Jesus himself. 
John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through or by me. Acts 4.12, there is salvation found in no other name but Jesus Christ. How can a person come to the Father? You go through Jesus. How do you go through Jesus? With a sense of guilt about your sins. And so you come as a confessor, confessing your sinfulness, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, confessing your need of His grace, confessing allegiance to Christ, confessing faith in the blood from His sacrifice to be payment for your sins. And what happens is Jesus takes you to the Father and He says, He did this. She did this. I speak for this person. Paid in full. That's the picture. Listen to Hebrews 10.19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. And it all just spills over, doesn't it? To the other elect ones that come because Jesus has brought them to the Father too. See, All the victory so we would have victory in our suffering. See it? It had a purpose. And and even if you don't understand that purpose yet, you could know that if Jesus, who suffered greater than you, had that kind of victory, God will give you the victory. Now, there's a second point here that we can just touch on. I'll introduce it to you, and then we'll get really into it next week. And this comes this time from his unmatched proclamation. Unmatched proclamation. Jesus didn't just have victory over sins by his death. He had victory over spirits. Not just victory over sins. Victory over spirits. Look at verse 18. One last time for this morning. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Let me just point out something here. The proclamation that Jesus made was to the demons. He took the death on the cross and his resurrection to come and proclaimed victory where these demons were. Now listen. You could sometimes feel like darkness has such a hold on you. Like all you see around you is defeat. Jesus proclaimed victory in the demonic realm too. And we share that victory too. I don't think I 
have to have you use your imagination much when I say that life can seem so dark. But the point is that suffering doesn't have to give into the impact of darkness all around us. We can have victory there too. And this might be one of the most important messages for you, for those of you who have struggled deeply with depression in the past that you've ever heard. Jesus proclaimed victory and he did so so we could too. All right. Let me conclude here. What's the point of all this? The death and suffering of Jesus Christ wasn't just a truth to look back on and see our justification in it all. You know, our position, our standing, and our forgiveness. It is for us to have an insight on how to live right now. How do we do it? With our eyes up, fixed on that author and perfecter of our faith. Looking for the blessed hope in appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We might live victorious in all our suffering because he did. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the words of Christ. We thank you for these words that Peter has given us. The death of Christ for us in our place help us to know how to handle any amount of suffering that comes our way. And we pray, Lord, would you please help us in the application of our own personal lives to know what to do with this. And just live in the joy of it all. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.